Critter and Crumb brings you a delightful collection of earrings featuring adorable animal pendants and tiny food charms. Whether you're an animal lover, a foodie, or simply someone who appreciates the beauty of whimsical jewelry, Critter and Crumb has something special for you. These earrings also make great gifts and stocking stuffers for friends, family members, even your children's teachers. And the best part? By supporting Critter and Crumb, you're not just getting a fabulous accessory, you're also supporting a small business that puts love into every creation. Head over to Critter and Crumb's Etsy shop today at critterandcrumb.etsy.com to explore their stunning selection of earrings. That's critterandcrumb.etsy.com critterandcrumb.etsy.com You are listening to Real Life and Other Fantasies, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello and welcome to this episode of Real Life and Other Fantasies. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and my guest this week is Bob Cox. Bob is a former senior manager for communications and public relations at Airbus Helicopters, Inc., and a former senior reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, one of the largest newspapers in Texas. Now he does whatever he wants because he's retired. (laughs) Bob, thanks for taking the time out of your retirement schedule to join me today. You're quite welcome. It's enjoyable to see you and talk with you. Thank you. All right. So first, I want to start with this conversation by asking you about your job at Airbus Helicopters. So what is an Airbus helicopter? Well, Airbus, you know, the corporation uh, is like Boeing and uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, uh, it has a helicopters division, kind of like Boeing does and and Lockheed now has a helicopter division, namely Sikorsky. Uh, you know, back in, I don't know, the 70s, 60s, 70s, the European aerospace companies began to consolidate one after another. The Greeks or the, the Germans and the Brit and the French and to some extent the British created the, the Airbus mothership that we know that makes the airplanes. Uh, there was a collection of, of European helicopter companies, uh, the German uh, company, and the French company. French was Aerospatial. Uh, I'm trying to remember that. Oh, the, the, the German company is uh, Daimler. No, not Daimler. Um, oh, shoot. I can't even remember the name of the. Oh, Messerschmitt. <laughs> Messerschmitt's in okay. the name. Um, and then the You're a Yankees fan. You should remember the name Messerschmitt, former yeah, pitcher. Well, and well, Messerschmitt, as in the German fighter planes. But uh, <laughs> And then the Spanish companies, they all merged, and they became something called Eurocopter. And Eurocopter had a U.S. division that became Eurocopter USA. And that company hired me in two, late 2012 from my newspaper job. Uh, as I was looking desperately for somewhere to land as the newspaper sank. And uh, I knew the people. I'd been covering the industry to some extent for more than a decade. 
covering Bell Helicopter here in Fort Worth. Airbus at the Europe, Eurocopter at the time was the had just surpassed Bell as the leading sales leading sales company in the U.S. of helicopters, uh, globally, worldwide, big, of course. And then the year after I got there, or shortly after I got there, they they were some more transitions. There's always transitions as any corporation, as you know. They're buying something, selling something, merging something. Uh, they said, oh, we're, we're going to be Airbus helicopters now. I went, what? <laughs> and I had spent years, 20 years of my life, uh, better part, knowing Boeing and working. My, my wife's father worked with Boeing. I covered Boeing. I knew Boeing CEOs and access. Also, I'm working for Airbus. So it was strange, a strange experience. But Airbus is the helicopter. Airbus Helicopters is the, the helicopter arm of the Airbus Corporation. And that's not quite what its official title is. Uh, and they are the largest helicopter manufacturing and sales organization in the world today. Okay. So let's, let's start from back, going back a ways, back to your birth. So you're, you're native of Bakersfield, California. I am. I know one thing about Bakersfield. It's the home of Buck Owens. That's there all I know go. about Bakersfield. The, the better I know thing is Merle Haggard. Okay. Yeah. That's, I, oh yeah. I forgot about that. You're a country music fan. So were you a fan of Buck Owens and the show Hee Haw? Not, not so much. In my family, Buck was kind of looked down upon as a hick. Uh, now, I knew the music. I'd heard it. Didn't know much about it as a kid. Um, I be was more, in my high school years, uh, Haggard broke out into the more mainstream, you know, uh, Mama Tried and The Prison Story. And then, of course, Oki from Muskogee, which burst him into the pop music scene in a way. Um, so I was a Haggard fan. You knew the Buck Owens music. I can't honestly say I began to really appreciate it in uh, probably about 30 years ago, mid-90s. Uh, my then ex-wife gave me a box set, Buck Owens' greatest hits, and I started listening to it, and there was some wonderful music on there, just some outstanding music for the time. When they were in the 50s and the 60s, they were doing things with the electric guitars and the Fender Telecasters. And I don't, you know, there's well, the a fabulous whole, music. The Bakersfield sound was yeah. invented by Buck Owens. Yeah, the Telecaster. And, and, uh, and that's, so I've subsequently gotten a lot more knowledgeable on that era of Bakersfield. Uh, there's a famous bar there called the Blackboard that I never got into. That was the scene of a lot of, of brawls and knifings <laughs> and gunshots and <laughs> back in the, from the really, I guess, the, I don't know if it's there in the 30s, but certainly 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, so I'm familiar with the sound. I went to uh, Merle Haggard and I attended the same junior high school quite a few years <laughs> apart. I'd like to say we went to different institutions of higher learning. He went to San Quentin Prison and I went <laughs> <on> to college. <laughs> All right, so tell me about your Texas roots, Texas and Arkansas roots, and how your ancestors went to California. Then you went from California back to Texas. <laughs> and I'm in Texas. <laughs> yeah, strange tales of life, right? Uh, I, you know, it's a common story, I think. Uh, the Dust Bowl, the 30s, the Great Depression. Um, my mother's family is from Dickens County, Texas, originally. Okay. 
uh, spur kind of east of just east of Lubbock there, not very far. Uh, pretty hard scrabble country, but I think both sides of her family were down there. Her father and at least one of his brothers and maybe more fled for California during the depression. Uh, didn't want to be on the farm. Um, and he, he uh, my grandfather and my grandmother were both down there. So they moved to Southern California during the depression. Um, I don't remember what all he did, but during the war, he was a welder and, and welded Liberty ships there in Los Angeles, and uh, which carried all the U.S. war material, to the, certainly to the Pacific and uh, to the island wars and all that. Um, I knew him as a welder when I come along my, uh, many years later. My dad's family was Arkansas, and I want to say western Arkansas, up around Fort Smith. And mm -hmm. there's a little military installation there now called Fort Chaffee. I think it's still called Fort Chaffee. It was Camp Chaffee in those days. And anybody listening to this show who was around in the 70s will remember that's where the Vietnamese landed uh, initially when we, mm. when we took all the Vietnamese in from Vietnam. They dumped them there in, in Arkansas. Poor, poor people. We <laughs> dumped them in the, in the Inconspicuous in Arkansas. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were dirt farmers. Uh, you know, I've heard great all the stories about the Depression. My family was still in a, farming with horses and wagons. And uh, so I've heard great stories from my father about his childhood. My uncle, two of my uncles, at least two of my uncles went to California during the Depression. My father was born in, I want to say, 34, 35. And um, during the war was probably the best time my family ever had. Um, they were all working for the military, uh, the army at the camp and their farm was leased to someone else who raised hogs to sell to the army <laughs> at the military mm, base. Okay. And not to the university of Arkansas. No, 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 no. Razorbacks to them. Yeah. The Razorbacks, I don't think you, you'd have to be pretty hungry to want to eat one of those, what I gather probably like a Texas, uh, wild hog, wild boar. Yeah. Some of the family, uh, Anyway, after the war, a year after the war, 46, my grandparents and my dad, who would have been about 10 or 11 years old at the time, two of their daughters and their husbands and their daughters' children. So I think there were four babies, basically. There were like four families tucked into cars and a pickup truck and moved to California. So it was, it was sort of the kind of the grapes of wrath. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they got to California and how the hell are we going to make a living? And, uh, you know, they all got jobs and prospered. And so I was born, my parents got married in, uh, September of 52. And I was born in August of 53. I had a year of high school before I was born. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we grew up kind of redneck. Arkansas, Texas roots, you know, there weren't a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the racial stuff was all around you and, and uh, you knew how to work. People knew how to work and they survived and they, they thrived. I had of the seven of my dad's six siblings, there were, well, my grandparents had 20 grandchildren on my dad's side. And, uh, most of those I knew growing up. <laughs> Christmas and Thanksgiving would be at my grandparents' house. Uh, 
and there's all these people and masses of food and talking and arguing and <laughs> you know, you may have had some of those similar family experiences. Yeah, you said 20, 20 um, grandchildren. That seems like a lot to most people, I'm sure. But to me, that's not that many. No I, probably have, a, yeah. I probably have 100 first cousins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I had 20, well, subtract the four of us. So 16 first cousins, two of which were my oldest uncle's second marriage. <laughs> and uh, there, so there were two younger than us. But uh Okay. Uh, not many on the, the other side of the family. A lot of people moved out from Texas. My my grandmother's side of the family, a lot of them ended up in the farther up the San Joaquin Valley around Modesto okay. and into the Bay Area some. So I'd like to say with the Buckland song, first generation California Okies, there were a lot of us like that. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I am not ashamed of the term Okie. I'm not technically an Okie. But I embrace the but, term. But you claim the term. Yeah, you know, right, these so you, are people you, who came from nothing. Uh, you know, again, in the Depression, we're farming with dirt horses and and dirt. And you hear the stories. They were they were eking out a living. Hmm. Uh, they were they were probably just one notch above sharecroppers. Truth be told. Okay, that actually leads into my next question. You're with your family coming from such a hard scramble background was there priority for you to go to college or is that something that you sort of developed an interest in later on? My parents said, you will all go to college. They said all four of us would go to college. You'll go to college. You'll go to college. So it was never a question to me. Uh, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do when I got there. Uh, I like you had dreams of growing up and playing baseball and I was going to be a <laughs> Replace Mickey Mantle as center fielder of the Yankees or something, and and one thing or another, I wasn't an outstanding, particularly outstanding student in high school. It got worse as it went along, but I got to I went to college. Uh, somewhere along the way, I had begun to develop an interest in journalism, reporting, doing some sports writing. Um, I spent two years at junior college. I was working a part time job, twenty to thirty hours a week. I was working stringing sports for the local daily and doing some sports for the weekly in the little farm town out where I lived. So I wasn't doing a lot of studying. <laughs> uh, the biology class, I, I remember the test going, my God, did I look at this? And I got to, I got, I transferred to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo as, uh, you know, four-year school. And interestingly enough, uh, this always amazes me even today. I had a philosophy class at eight o'clock in the morning. Now, coming from my roots, why would you have a philosophy class? I, you know, I had no clue. <laughs> and the the final, I, I got an A in it. The final exam was a take-home essay, and you had to pick a, photo, a philosopher, great philosopher and write about him. And I got an A. I thought, oh my nice. gosh, I can I can do this. And then I kind of got, okay, I want to get my grade point average up. And then at that point, the journalism was beginning to take more focus. And I ran into a great teacher, a mentor, became a dear friend, almost a second father figure to me. And other things happened. All right. So you eventually went on to a career in newspapers. And I'm wondering, what's what do you think is the best story you've ever covered in your oh. journalism career? That that would be hard to say. There have been some really incredible stories over the years at different phases. I, I early on sort of 
what's the story behind the story? You know, dig it a little deeper, turn over the page, the investigative sort of thing. Uh, although, you know, of course, Woodward and Bernstein had done their thing in the 70s. And I didn't set out to do that, but I quickly gravitated in that direction. I was reading the Wall Street Journal every day and just going, my, these are wonderful stories. I read the New York Times. So that was my aspiration. Um, I covered a lot of agriculture in California. There was, I would say, California agriculture, there were so many different crops. And everyone had its own politics and its own economics. Uh we did an investigative piece, another reporter and I spent months and months and months digging through this fellow's past who had somehow managed to borrow $50 million from the U.S. government. Wow. Now, this is 1982-83, so $50 million wow. is a lot more money than it is now. <laughs> well, 40 years ago, that's probably $100 million at least. Yeah, oh, at least. And, and it was just obvious. How the hell does this guy get $50 million from a program that's supposed to lend maybe a million to somebody, you know? if they were a big farmer in Iowa or someplace. And we spent countless hours in records, researching family records and financial records and all this. That was huge. Our editor our editor did nominate us for a Pulitzer. Nice. The, the San Jose paper, San Jose Mercury News won the Pulitzer that year for counting, for writing about uh, the Marcos family. And I said, well, actually, I think our story was just as good. We just didn't count Imelda Marcos' shoes. <laughs> so it's You only could count up to $50 million. You can count beyond that. You know, and then the interest, <laughs> and there were other deals. And we, we actually FOIA'd Freedom of Information Act, the government, for records. And they said, well, you can't have the records because they're part of, by this point, a, a federal investigation, Justice Department investigation. I said, no, no, no. We just want to see the loan records. We don't care what you're investigating. We want to see the loan records. And initially, uh, I don't remember it was Justice Department, I think it was uh, Agriculture Department, turned down our our FOIA. And I thought, there's no way in the hell our editors will ever go for this. And and the uh, then CEO of the newspaper, a businessman, he care less, truth be told, about the journalism, he walked in one day, he said, Those, we wrote this one set of stories. You know, and laid it all out in the family history, sordid family history. And he says, I think we should sue the government for the records. He could have knocked me over the feather. And it could, again, this is a businessman, not a newspaper guy. And our editors really weren't, they didn't care anymore about it, you know. <laughs> and he said, let's sue the government. So we filed, got our lawyer, filed a lawsuit. A couple of three months go by. One day I get a phone call from a lawyer at the Justice Department. He goes, you know, I can't really defend this. You know, I can't defend this. Uh, how about if we give you access to all those records? You withdraw your lawsuit and pay your own expenses, <laughs> which <laughs> you know, 1983 or four, what the lawyer costs? I don't know. You know, and so we did. And we spent two, the, the other reporter and I spent two days at the uh, uh, federal building in Fresno, California, sorting through box after box in the FBI office. <laughs> Of, of paperwork. We didn't turn up any great landmines. You know, there was, there was no scandal that you could find other than st stupidity and incompetence, maybe. Uh, there was a letter from Jesse Helms. Remember Jesse Helms? Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember Senator Jesse. from North Carolina asking what was going on, but that was the only, you know, there wasn't anything else. It was just the guy calls up and says, will you, will you help me? And he writes a letter. 
that was a big deal at the time. And, and it really, um, you know, it taught me a lot about investigative reporting, about doing documents work, which I've done a lot of over the years in other places. So that was a big one. It was really the one that, you know, I got a couple of awards for and, and uh, it, it sort of set the stale. There have been others that have probably been more important in the grand scheme of things. I spent several years writing about the V-22 Osprey tilt rotor crazy airplane, the helicopter that the Marines still find new ways to crash and kill. And it's, it's a mess. But, you know, it's the U.S. government, so they spend their money and they don't ask a lot of questions. Like, they ask questions, but you don't really, you don't really stop the train for running. <laughs> All right. So you're retired now. Do you still consider yourself a journalist? Will you always consider yourself a journalist? Yeah, I think so. Yes. I, I read a lot of news. Uh, I don't, I don't take a single newspaper at home. I, I don't get a paper paper, but on the phone, the screen, I'm reading parts of the New York times, the Washington post, the wall street journal, uh, magazines, whatever pops up. I see the links on Twitter and I'll go, click that link. And I've ended up subscribing to more damn things for $50. Uh, I love reading really good uh, investigative type journalism where somebody just keeps turning over the stones. And eventually you find enough pieces of the puzzle. A great story comes together. Uh, I'm a political junkie. I don't think you can work in news and not be a political junkie. I did newspapers for 33 years, so it's pretty well ingrained in my system. I did 33 years of that and really the last seven years of corporate. So I'm much more of a news guy than I am a communications guy. But I, okay. communications will pay some, so I still do some of that. <laughs> I understand. All right, so we're going to do a left turn here, right turn, whichever direction turn you want to take. So let's talk about fatherhood. So you, you mentioned that you're – your father with you, two children, you, you were a single father for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And so was I. So I understand that dynamic. And sometimes it's not a competition, but women who are single parents, people under, seem to understand that difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. But when men are single parents, it's some it's, it's often overlooked. And unfortunately, I think... Sometimes men don't get enough credit, and because of that, they tend to not give enough effort. That's a generalization. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that you, you gave that effort, and you had to make some career sacrifices in order to do it, but I'm sure that's something that you feel like was well worth it. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that situation and, and what it was like. You know, Melvin, I had no clue what I was getting into when I had my first child. I'm sure you didn't either. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> they, they hand you this thing at the hospital and you go, oh my God, my life has been upended. And, you know, I from day one, I was changing diapers and feeding. And it's it just, my father was kind of distant, didn't participate in much of that, you know. This was me. I'm going to get involved. So, I'm 27 and daughter number one comes along and, and uh, I don't know, it just, it changed who I was in many ways. And I think four and a half, five years later, number two comes along. And I always tell friends, I said, the first one, you're scared to death. 
You don't know. You're going to drop them. You're going to make a mistake. You're, you're going to ruin their lives. Second one, you relax. You enjoy more, I think. I mean, I did. And they were totally different personalities. And I made a, I made a decision, including, you know, then, then, then wife and I made a decision. We were going to move from California to, to Wichita, Kansas for career. Not a good decision. Not a well-informed decision. Not a well-thought-out decision. And if you can imagine moving from California to Wichita, Kansas, you're going, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> the job wasn't what I thought it would be. Uh, I had taken a pay cut. You're, you're just horrible. And at that time, I was pretty depressed. I, I was I actually was clinically depressed. And I, at that time, the kids were what I had. And, you know, I, I was I remember I was telling some friends just a little bit ago. I would, my youngest would say, night, Daddy, put me to bed and read to me. And one night I'd realize she was actually reading to me. But, <laughs> but it was so cool. It was so cool. And then the wife says, she, you know, I went out of this and whatever. Uh, I'm in Wichita still. And, and, you know, what are you going to do now? Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to stay with these girls. So, you know, there's the shared, the shared custody thing. And, Weekends and Wednesdays and, you know, it was not always fun. Uh, but I, I, uh, I have two, two grown now middle-aged daughters. And when they call and they say, Hey daddy, I melt. Hmm. Um, I don't, you know, again, I, at that point I had to say, I'm going to stay here. I wanted to work for the Wall Street Journal or I wanted to work for the Seattle Times or whatever it was. And there were a couple of calls I took. And I'm going, I, I just don't think I'm going to leave. I always lived within a mile of my ex so that I was close to the kids. I had a dog. She knew where her kids lived. She would cross <laughs> a busy street to get there and show up on their front porch. Um, you know, to this day... You know, I've done some things in this life that are a pretty big deal, but the fact that I've got two pretty normal daughters, and and when they say "Daddy," my old heart still melts. That's that's a big deal. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a trophy you can't hang up on the you can't put no, on the the mantle, no, but no, you, no. And, you, you and, cherish uh, it. You, I you know that's a reward. I, I went through we went through hard times. We went through difficulties. But there were there's little moments. I remember taking my daughter to a boat, the oldest daughter, to the boat show. I was a fisherman in that, or I tried to be. <laughs> and they they'd gone fishing in the boat and stuff with me. And we go to this boat show in Wichita, and they have these ice chests there with striped bass in them, caught up at Lake Texoma. These guides are there advertising. I said, "Would you like to do that?" She's ten years old or something. So the next year, I set it up. We came down from Wichita to Dallas. We spent the weekend. We went to Dallas one night. We went to a Rangers game at the old ballpark right up on the freeway there. And uh, the old windy outdoor stadium. And uh, then we went fishing at Texas. And it was a daddy-daughter, you know, very just cool thing. Looking back on it. That's still pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Uh, she was catching fish. The guy, the guy threw her line out. And before he could even get she had a fish on, you know, reeling it in, and the best of times. Wonderful those are the things. memories that that you never forget. You can't. You can always no, you share those things. 
Yeah, my, no my story you... as a single dad are similar. I had twice as many kids as you, though. I had four <laughs> four kids, three yeah. three girls and a boy. Oh, and wow. I moved from Texas Texas to Maryland. Oh, and didn't quite work out my job or my marriage. We separated <laughs> about a year after moving there. Oh, and wow. my ex-wife decided to settle in Maryland. So I decided to yeah. stay there to be near the kids. And my youngest yeah. daughter at the time was three years old. So my commitment was to stay there until she graduated from high school. So that was 15 years mm. that I was committed to being at a place where I wasn't really desiring to be except my kids were there and that's that was the only thing that mattered and so i'm i don't regret that at all i i'm thankful i made that commitment to them i know um our relationship is good today because of that yeah i made sure they were safe and and secure and that's something that i will never never regret Uh, one thing you mentioned about the difference between your first and second kid and how your confidence grows as a parent the way I used to describe it when I was a younger dad to, to young, younger, even younger than me, dads, like with your, your first kid, your kid has a pacifier and it, they drop it on the floor or on the ground. You pick it up and you get a <laughs> pot of boiling water and you boil it to make sure it's sterilized, oh, make sure it's cool off. And then you give it back to him. With the second kid, they drop the pacifier. You run it under some hot water in the sink and then you give it back to him. The third kid drops the pacifier you pick it up, you pick it up and you just wipe it off on your pants <laughs> and you give it back to them. And then with the fourth kid, you just pick it up and stick it back in their mouth. <laughs> that, that's the progression or regression of parenting. They're really hard to screw up, you know? <laughs> so that was my experience anyway. Yeah. No, you, you do. You, you learn that this little crisis, they're going to fall. They're going to hit their head. They're, it'll all be all right tomorrow, you know? Yep. You hope so, anyway. You yeah, hope you so. hope so. There's days, but no, it's uh, it, it, is it? I would. When I remarried, we had been talking about it. Uh, my current wife and I, and you know, I was she was forty, thirty nine. I don't know. You know, we're getting past the point, and and I finally said, "Look, let's get married." But I'm done. I could see. I could see. I was four or five years away from child support being over. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I might have done it if I was younger because I did one. There was a time I wanted another one. Okay. Well, I'm sure the the two you have are, are joys in your life, and one of them there. lives in Australia. Is that correct? One of them lives in Australia. She's now in Melbourne, Australia. She's lived there for oh, good grief, twelve years now. Yeah, she left here in 2011, and uh, after a hot summer trying to get a real job and slinging beer in Fort Worth and. Finally, she said, I'm out of here. And we knew there was a guy she'd met in Australia previously. And mm-hmm. and they got together, and he's a great guy. And, and so How often do you see her? Uh, saw her last year. They came for their first trip after COVID, after Australia finally opened up. So 2022, we had not seen her. We might have seen her. She's been here three or four, maybe four times in the intervening 10, 12 years. Uh, we went down in 2018, spent two weeks in the Sydney area with them when they were living in Sydney at the time, which was a wonderful trip. I highly recommend Australia. The people are a lot of fun. Um, and we're discussing whether we can go next year or not, you know, financial issues and all that fun stuff. But, uh, 
not often enough. I can't just pick up and go see her. On the other hand, my other daughter lives uh, in Dallas, sort of mid midtown Dallas, uh, mm-hmm. 75 and 635 roughly. And I haven't seen her in two months, but I know she's there and we talk on the phone. Right. She's busy. I'm busy. Right. But you get to see her. I so do get to see her. That's a good thing. All right. So... A pretty big thing happened this year with baseball in the Dallas area. I, <laughs> I'm straining to to bring that up because <laughs> my team is, is the other team in Texas. But the Texas Rangers won the World Series, and I know you're a baseball fan. I don't think you're a Rangers fan. I think no. you're a Yankees fan. Is that correct? I'm a Yankees fan. All right. So how did you become a Yankees fan, being from Texas and or being from California and Texas I, and Kansas? I, I, I can only attribute it to A, the Yankees were the winners back in the 60s. And I, and I first probably didn't become aware till I can remember asking my father about the, did the Yankees win the World Series in 1962? And you may be, well, you're too young. You weren't even around then. Yeah, I wasn't born uh, yet. The last, I believe the last out of the game was Willie McCovey hit a screaming line drive right at Bobby Richardson in the seventh game. Uh, he said, yeah, they're lucky or something. So I, I'm aware of it. I remember the 63 series, although I didn't see any of it. And I, you know, we, if I also remember growing up and remember growing up my home, we only had television sporadically. My parents weren't big fans of it. The, tele, the old television broke. They wouldn't fix it for six months or a year. So I don't remember. And, and at school, you, you had to go to school during the day. So I remember the 63 series and the Yankees being swept by the Dodgers. Why I became a Yankee fan, I can only assume, A, it's their winners, and B, of course, Mickey Mantle was my boyhood hero. I'm thinking there's something to being from him being from Oklahoma. You know, but I, I can't really tell you that's the exact reason. All I knew was at some point I woke up and I'm a Yankees fan. Mickey Mantle's my boyhood hero. And the Dodgers literally... From my house to the gates of Dodger Stadium, about 100 miles. I used to drive it as I used once I got a car. I used to drive it all the time. Me and a buddy go to Dodger games. We once made it in an hour and 15 minutes. I'll tell you how fast we were going. (laughs) (laughs) And and, you know, you had a five foot, five thousand foot mountain range to climb, and there was a lot of highway patrolmen. So I don't know. Um, So I guess that's how I became a Yankee fan, and. you know, the, the glory years largely were behind them. And then the 70s, you saw uh, after Steinbrenner took over, and he had a baseball guy running the front office, named Gabe Paul, old Cleveland Indians guy, and they put together some pretty good teams, and they lost to the Reds one year, and the next year they beat the Dodgers. And the next year they got Reggie. And all the drama that ensued with Reggie, <laughs> I went to I went to one World Series game. I'm trying to remember, I, I I'm sure Yan- Reggie was with the Yankees that year, and somehow I knew. In those days, there was a company called Ticketron. They had counters in Sears stores, and they sold concert tickets and baseball games and all that. And I'm watching the Yankees beat the Kansas City Royals. The announcer said, or maybe it's the Dodgers after that. 
We knew the Dodgers were in and out. And Vin Scully says, and tickets to the World Series will go on sale Monday morning, tomorrow morning, whatever it was, at 8 o'clock at Ticketron. Well, where I lived at the time on the coast of California was about 20 miles from the next town that had a Sears store that had a Ticketron. And I'm there half an hour before the gates open, the doors open, <laughs> with a lot of other people that got a, got a World Series game. And, oh, and that's nice. the only World Series game I've attended. Was that 78? I think it was 78, and it was a two-to-one game. The, we were sitting in the right field seat, right field bleachers in Dodger Stadium, which means the sun is right in your eyes. I just thought, <laughs> if Reggie Jackson hits a screaming line drive, You'll never get you in the face, you know. <laughs> As it was, I think he hit a squib infield single in the first inning. <laughs> you were safe Mike from Torres, that. Mike Torres pitched for the Yankees, and Tommy John pitched for the Dodgers. Mike Torres is a, is a dirty word in Houston for those of fans around my age. Because really? um, Houston had a young superstar shortstop in the early 80s named Dickie Thon. Yes. And Mike Torres hit him in the face with a pitch. Oh my and God! It damaged his eyesight, and oh, he was yeah. never the same after that. Like he had just the year before, as a like 22, 23 year old, he won the Silver Slugger Award as a shortstop. Great speed, great defense. I, I remember the name, and a I remember power hitter in the Astrodome hitting twenty home runs was pretty oh. unusual. And and Mike Torres, that's just a bad word in Houston. <laughs> oh, you know, and he pitched for the Red Sox. The year he pitched for the Yankees, before he pitched for the Yankees, and they beat him in that one-game playoff where Bucky Dent, you know, bleeping, bleeping Bucky Dent hit the home run <laughs> over the wall. I, yes. I, I remember that part, but I remember Torres pitched that game the next year as a Yankee. And I okay. remember those Astros teams, not a lot, but I remember Joe Morgan and Jimmy Wynn and Larry Durker. And, that was the early 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They and traded away Morgan, Morgan in '72. I saw Joe Morgan a lot when he became a Cincinnati Red. We would go to we'd go to Dodger games and we get there. You could go for batting practice in those days, and watch the big red machine take batting practice. That was worth the price of a ticket right there. Now they might get yeah, beat one by a Dodger pitcher, but <laughs> Joe Morgan, George Foster, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez, Pete oh, Rose. Wow. Yeah, that was an all-star lineup. It was. And I loved Joe Morgan. I loved him as an announcer. I thought he was a good announcer. Uh, the to- uh, no, it was Jimmy Wynn was the toy cannon. Joe Morgan was something else. Just J- Little Joe. They just called him Little Joe. Oh, but those two guys had so much power and to have had play in the Astrodome, which was not conducive to home runs. No. I saw a video once of, of Jim Wynn and hitting a home run in Cincinnati that hit out of the stadium, and you could see the ball bouncing on the freeway outside the stadium. <laughs> and he was like five eight, maybe five he nine. He played for the Yankees one or two seasons towards the end of his career, too, as I recall, when they were picking up odds and ends, you know. Right. But I, I remember those two Astros well, and and they had some good pitching in those days. Uh, long forgotten, long long ago, far away. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I was a kid, but I was a big fan. I've been an Astros fan my whole life. I grew up there. Always, I'll always be an Astros fan or no fan. I, oh, once, I remember, once their season's remember, over, my season's over. I remember building the Astrodome and they brought Mickey Mantle in to see if he could hit the roof. Uh, you know, I, I, little th- little things from it. It's just my child. I mean, literally, I'm 
what year did they open the Astrodome? 67? 65. Yeah. I mean, I'm 12 years old, and I'm reading about this in the newspaper. I was reading the newspaper really young. (laughs) So was I. I used to sit outside waiting for the paper to be delivered in the morning. That's how much of a nerd I was. But one of my – I don't know if you heard this episode. One of my first episodes of this podcast, I interviewed Den Mann, whose grandfather designed the Astrodome. Yes. Yes, I did hear that. That was fascinating. Yeah, he he did a lot of things in Houston. So it was it was really interesting to get a chance to talk to. I, I never to the got grand to go to the Astrodome. I've been to Minute Maid two or three times. Really enjoyed going there when I, I thought they're inviting maybe this indoor baseball's not such a bad thing. And then you come up here in Texas and sit there it's hundred and eleven degrees or something, you know, oh God. <laughs> yeah, one one more quick story about about baseball um, and and climate control. Having grown up in Houston, where I went to all my games in the Astrodome, where it was always 72 degrees, mm-hmm. no matter what the weather outside was like. And then Minute Maid came along in 2000 and it had a retractable roof. So if the weather outside wasn't mm-hmm. 72, they would close the roof. Mm-hmm. Well, the first two games I attended as an adult outside of Houston, one was in Arlington. So I saw the Astros play in Arlington, and it was 108 degrees. And there was no roof, no air conditioning. Mm-hmm. The next game I saw outside of Houston was in Baltimore, and it snowed. <laughs> <laughs> so we got 108 degrees on one extreme and snow on the other. I'm thinking, yeah. why don't they have a roof on these stadiums? What's wrong with these people? <laughs> That's well, when I knew it was going to be a struggle. This the first time in Baltimore. my life I've ever – well, yeah, L.A. was close, 100, 110 miles or something. When I came here in 99 and could go to baseball games, it was for the first time, really. Uh, you know, you, you could decide you're going to go to the baseball game or go. And I remember going that first year one night, you know, get off work, go to the baseball game. I don't think my family had moved. My wife hadn't moved down here yet. And it was 99. It was hot. Probably, you know, it was just hot. It was the Yankees. And that's um, the game went for like four and a half hours. I mean, nobody, they just kept trotting in relief pitchers who couldn't get anybody out. It's kind of like the game for the last 10 years. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's like, okay, you're worn out the next day. You're, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how hot it was, but it was hot. And then in 2010, I moved my daughter back to Texas. She was sick, broken, unemployed out in California. And so we would go to games in 2011, which was a brutal summer. Here it was hot and dry. I mean, you remember the snowstorm at the Super Bowl? The week before mm-hmm. the Super Bowl and the ice and all that? Yes. Well, it was it in Dallas. We didn't get any moisture again for six months. It didn't seem like a long. And the summer wow. was hot and brutal. And my daughter and I would go to these games or at the, uh, uh, the ballpark here. The nice and I love the Arlington ballpark they had. Still have it. But um, – and you're sitting there, and you're going, it's 107 or 8. And by the time the sun went down, the thermometer on the scoreboard would still be 99. And I was like, oh, this is just brutal. <laughs> There's some other games I went where it was practically freezing. Went to a doubleheader of the Yankees and Rangers one day, and it opened up and poured. Opened up and poured in like the ninth inning of the first game. And the, the field's water. And then it drains off. A roof they, get now. It, they get it dry, and you have the second game. Well, now you got a roof. So, but the climate yes. extremes were pretty tough. Yes, but it's all better now. 
you got a, you got climate control. It's all better. That's the way Partly God intended it to be. It Baseball play. indoors. The partner doesn't feel quite right, though. You know, you can't have a windblown pop fly. Or... Mm, I don't care about all that. I just want to be comfortable. <laughs> those elements. There is that. You, As can, I get older, you can deal I've with those at some other stadium, that. some other state that I don't have to be at in person. <laughs> all right. So you talk about um, schedule and being a game lasting forever. Now that you're retired, you don't really have time you well you're not as committed to time so you've got more of a free schedule now and you can do sort of what you want so what's what's a regular schedule like now for somebody who's newly retired you know it was funny i retired and we immediately went into the covid lockdown within the first couple of months and i had nothing to do of course you couldn't do anything i mean i've, I've got like plans for retirement i'm gonna go do this and go hang out and listen to music and that and I have this big black dog I'd adopted a few years earlier. And I got in the habit of walking. Well, I had to walk him morning and night. So we found a park right over here, right? We're close. Right? Let's go find this park. And in the meantime, they moved a bunch of houses out of it and just left it kind of wild. And he and I would start going over there and he just loved it. And, <laughs> and you could talk to people walking their dogs. And so you had a little social life. And so we started walking, lots of walking, and then we'd walk again in the evenings. And I, you know, that year I had no outside. I had one little, one little outside quote job come up. I took on, and I built four thousand dollars and got a thousand out of it. <laughs> it was kind of a fun deal. Uh, I won't go into the details, but it was just, you know, it was like getting your fingers in a pie. Uh, um, so it was, that year it was just adjustment, and but I quickly uh, schedules don't mean so much, yeah. Uh, and even now, I mean, I did yard work yesterday. And I went to bed last night. Oh my god, I hurt everywhere. Uh, <laughs> I, take, I take some Tylenol, the Tylenol PM, and uh, some a pain med, and you know I'm going to sleep. Well, the dog's getting me up at like nine thirty this morning. <laughs> he was ready to get out. <laughs> Nine thirty is not that early, though. My dog. No, it wasn't that early. Up at he, five he's, up, he's, he's up at seven, seven thirty. My wife gets up, and he's willing to let me. But you know, he's like, "I want to go." So our my life revolves now getting out in the morning with the dog, and we go walk. We're trying to now that the heat finally broke. We're walking three miles, two and a half, three, three and a half miles in the mornings. He chases squirrels. Oh. I walk. Um. I've got some jobs. I've got a couple of projects I'm working on. I'm waiting for people to pay me. <laughs> uh, so then I'll continue working. Um, you know, I spend way too much time on the looking at the phone or this sometimes the computer <laughs> screen, balancing my finances and reading the news. All right. Well, I, I just have one more question for you before we, we wrap up today's conversation. Yeah. So now what, what type of plans do you have for the holidays? We're, this is being recorded the week of Thanksgiving and will probably air in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So what, what are you doing for the holidays? Well, tomorrow, now Christmas? Uh, I, you know, I don't have any family in this area other than my daughter. Uh, I married a woman from Wichita and you know this, you marry someone, you marry a family. We won't go into that in detail, but my mother-in-law is 85 and now in a, we finally got her into a senior citizen place last year of numerous crisis and this and so we'll go up and i will take her my wife and maybe my brother-in-law to 
to lunch, to Thanksgiving meal in at a restaurant in Wichita, and uh, hopefully see a couple of old friends along the way. And so my life now revolves heavily around my mother-in-law and things and <laughs> Christ medical crises and other things. Um, I am just booked a trip yesterday to California in uh, the first week of December. My mother always puts together a, a uh, family gathering. All right. So hopefully you'll have a good, good holiday season. Good Merry Christmas. So if I don't talk to you again before Christmas, I hope you and your family have a Merry Christmas. Have a safe trip to Wichita or California or both, <laughs> whichever one you end up going to. Yeah. And so our guest today has been um, journalist Bob Cox. And thanks, Bob, for joining me today and for this conversation. Well, thank you for inviting me. And, and it's been a pleasure. And it's a pleasure thank getting you. to know you. Yes, absolutely. The same here. So that's it for another edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies. Join us again next time for another great storytelling adventure. Until then. Don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.